You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 239 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. This is the third episode of a four-part series recorded at the Third World Ayahuasca Conference in Girona, Catalonia, Spain, organized by ICERS. In this one we are going to hear from the legend himself, ethnopharmacologist and author Dennis McKenna. Welcome to the uh, third edition of the World Ayahuasca Conference. Welcome to the uh, third edition of the World Ayahuasca Conference. Which, you know, things like this conference, things like ayahuasca, do encourage people to at least be concerned about Amazonians who are generally disregarded uh, worldwide. The human species, which I sometimes call the stupid monkeys, uh, are not listening to the message, which is that we have to re-understand our relationship with nature. Right now, the public education is the most important thing. Very little research is conducted in a dialogue with indigenous Amazonian people. The extraction never stops. The extraction never stops. Viva los pueblos indígenas de la cuenca amazónica! I sat in a press conference with uh, Dennis McKenna and I managed to ask him a few questions. Although I think my questions were the weird ones, at least judging from his reaction. But uh, the questions had to be asked. And uh, none of the journalists, myself included, had our microphone or our device um, in our hands. We place them before Dennis where he was sitting so when when people ask a question you can't really hear it so what I did was I re-recorded all the questions my own and others um, for this uh, episode and it makes it easier for you the listener to enjoy it anyway during this press conference Dennis began by talking a bit of shop talk at the start where he introduces himself and his work. And it's a bit technical about ayahuasca and psychedelics, so it might not be everyone's cup of tea. 
you know, the more philosophical aspects regarding psychedelics were often handled by his late brother, the also legendary Terence McKenna. Dennis uh, talks a bit about something called the UDV, and uh, that stands for Uniao do Vegetal, which is basically an ayahuasca church in Brazil, similar to the more famous Santo Daime. Okay, that's enough to prepare you. Here's Dennis McKenna. All right, so um, I guess we'll we'll get started. I'm not uh, used to this kind of format, but um, um, I have to tell you right up front, I have hearing aids. I'm a deaf as a post, <laughs> so that's convenient sometimes. But when you ask questions, you know, either yell or be prepared to repeat them and so on. So I'm, I'm told that uh, I should say a little bit about who I am and, and what I do. Um, I like to call myself an ethnopharmacologist. Ethnopharmacology is the study of indigenous medicines, basically. I mean, there's a longer, more precise definition, but I won't bore you with that. But that, in a nutshell, is what it is. It's studying the use of biologically active substances uh, used or observed in indigenous cultures, not necessarily medicines. For example, uh, uh, arrow poisons would be one topic of ethnopharmacology, uh, you know, or fish poisons. This falls under the same rubric, but mostly I've devoted my life to the study of ayahuasca. Uh, I did my PhD work uh, at the University of British Columbia, received my degree in 1984, and my, uh, my uh, thesis work was as a comparative investigation of the chemistry, the botany, and the pharmacology of ayahuasca, which of course is on everyone's lips now and has become a global phenomenon with another very obscure Amazonian hallucinogen called ukuhe that almost nobody's heard of unless they've listened to my talks. And that, that, was, uh, that was also, like ayahuasca, an orally active preparation uh, based of DMT tryptamine uh, containing preparation uh, that was derived from Varola species. Now, Varola is a member of the nutmeg family, and many tribes uh, make a snuff out of the bark, out of the sap of Varola. The pina snuff, the snuff uh, that the Tucano, the Yanomami Indians use, for example, is derived from Varola. There's good reason to make snuff out of DMT-containing plants because DMT is not orally active by itself. That's the magic of ayahuasca, that in combination with an MAO inhibitor, a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, DMT becomes orally active. So that was fairly well understood, <coughs> excuse me, for ayahuasca. And my study was basically a comparison of similar, the mechanisms of oral activity of ayahuasca <coughs> excuse me, compared to this um, other, much more obscure uh, preparation known as ukuhe. And unlike ayahuasca, uh, ukuhe is derived from a highly impacted culture. It was used in a very limited context. <coughs> you think somebody could bring me a glass of water? 
possible. Uh, and so that was the thrust of my thesis at the time. And, uh, and I have been interested in ayahuasca ever since. Thank you. Uh, I guess my next uh, professional um, experience with ayahuasca was um, after I got my degree about in 1981. In 1991, I was invited to a uh, seminar in Sao Paulo that was organized by the UDV. And myself and a number of investigators were invited there to present whatever we had to present. It turned out, though, that the, uh, the real agenda, the sort of sub-agenda for the UDV was that they wanted to do a biomedical study of ayahuasca. And there was a political as well as a scientific reason. They were genuinely interested in finding, you know, any benefits it might have, any harm that it might have. But they also wanted to have scientific data to present to CONFEN, which is the Brazilian agency that uh, regulates uh, both drugs of abuse and also pharmaceuticals. So CONFEN was considering at that time the possibility that they might ban ayahuasca. The UDV considered this, uh, you know, one of their, their sacrament, basically, so they wanted to accumulate and carry out a study to accumulate scientific knowledge so that they could present a good case to the UDV or to the to CONFEN that it was not a public health hazard and that it should not be banned. And so uh, for various reasons they wanted much of that work to be done by outside investigators rather than Brazilians, although we had Brazilians on the team they wanted, I don't know, the, the uh, so-called legitimacy or whatever of American and European investigators. So they held this conference and uh, uh, presented this idea. This is one of these things that, you know, the most interesting things going on are the conversations in the corridors. You've all been to conferences like that where the real stuff gets done during the coffee breaks. Nothing useful is getting done in this coffee break. These coffee breaks, it took me 20 minutes just to get that much coffee. Anyway, <laughs> I'll leave the complaints aside. But So they proposed this idea of doing a biomedical study, and it was very uh, appealing to me and some of the other investigators. So we went home, and uh, we put together a grant proposal uh, initially, I was hoping the grant could be uh, submitted to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, uh, the U.S. Institute that funds that kind of research, but the further I got into it, I realized that uh, there was no way the National Institute on Drug Abuse was going to fund this conference because they're interested in funding, uh, you know, they're interested in finding harms of drugs, not benefits. But as we got into it, we found some private uh, support for it. Uh, the Hefter Research Institute was just getting started at that time. And if you don't know about the Hefter Research Institute, you should look at it online. It's a nonprofit that supports biomedical investigations of psychedelics. Uh, the URL is hefter, H-E-F-F-T-E-R dot org. Lately, they've been focusing on psilocybin, but at the time we were able to uh, sort of use that as a venue to get nonprofit support. We got 
uh, from a couple of generous donors, we got about 75 grand to go back to Brazil in uh, 1993 and carry out this biomedical study, which was the first uh, investigation of the physiological effects and psychological effects of ayahuasca in humans. Uh, and uh, it was an important study, you know, because it was done the first, it was the first one of its kind. And from that, there emerged um, about seven or eight peer-reviewed papers uh, that were all published, and the results of that, you know, have, have appeared in the literature. Uh, and, and so, in fact, you, you know, the results of the study were important. CONFEN did accept ayahuasca and afford permission for the UDV, the Santo Daime, and these other religious groups to use it. They were satisfied that it was not a drug problem. And a few years later, when the UDV had their their case before the Supreme Court in the United States, uh, arguing for their right to use ayahuasca, Jeff Gronfman, the head of the U.S. Uh, branch of the UDV, who was just here, presented that case uh, to the Supreme Court as it wound its way through the legal system, the way it works, and the Supreme Court also unanimously uh, ruled that uh, the UDV had a right to use ayahuasca as a in their religious practices. <clears throat> much of that, uh, much of the evidence that supported the UDV's case came from the the biomedical study, which has sort of been, in in you know it it, it has been come to be called the Wasca Project. If you Google the Wasca Project, uh, information will come up about it. So that's kind of the capsule summary. I, um, Ayahuasca has been a part of my life for many years and, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have it in my life both as a personal teacher and, and practice but also as an object of scientific study. And uh, I'm very pleased uh, at the science that's coming out of it lately. Much of this work is being done by Brazilian researchers and uh, they're finding new properties of ayahuasca and some of the alkaloids like harmine that were unsuspected before. Uh, previously it was thought that harmine was an MAO inhibitor and that's pretty much what it did for ayahuasca. It turns out it does so much more than that. It interacts with a number of different uh, cellular messengers, cellular processes related to neurogenesis, for example, and the development of dementias, and it appears that, uh, and depression, all these different things, and uh, many of the therapeutic uh, effects attributed to ayahuasca may actually be because of harmine and tetrahydroharmine. Uh, DMT is in the brew and it gives it the psychedelic sparkle, if you will, but it is not necessarily the most important therapeutic compound. The two alkaloids that seem to uh, have a lot to do with ayahuasca's long-term therapeutic effects are harmine and tetrahydroharmine. One interesting finding that we had from the UDV study was that in long-term users of ayahuasca, uh, 
we asked a very naive question. Is there a biochemical, identifiable biochemical difference between drinkers and non-drinkers of ayahuasca that's not an acute effect, that is, uh, you know, something that sticks around? And interestingly, we found that ayahuasca causes a long-term uh, elevation, or the pharmacology, the term is upregulation of the serotonin transporters, which was puzzling at the time. It raises the abundance, the activity of these transporters. Now, these are not receptors. These are the pumps in the presynaptic membrane that drugs like SSRIs work on. They inhibit these they inhibit the uptake of serotonin by these by these uh, serotonin transporters. Ayahuasca doesn't inhibit it except acutely, but it causes more of the transporters to form. We found this result. We thought, well, what does that mean? And we didn't really have an idea what the significance of that work might be. Uh, but we uh, went into the literature, which is what you do when you find an unexpected, when you know, you're trying to find out what does it mean? And it turns out there was a whole uh, spectrum of pathologies related to uh, abnormal deficits in these transportal, uh, transporters, abnormally low levels of these transporters. And, and it turns out that things like alcoholism, certain kinds of alcoholism, intractable, intractable depression, uh, suicidal and homicidal behavior, a number of behavioral deficits uh, were related to abnormally low levels of these uh, amine transporters. So that seemed very interesting because in our psychological profiling of the UDV subjects, they all more or less told the story that, that they had entered the UDV. They had been motivated to join because they were in a state of crisis in their lives. Very often, most often having to do with either alcoholism or family dysfunction or drug abuse or depression. So the very things that, and, and they all more or less testified that ayahuasca had changed their life. They felt that they were on a path that was going to, that was very destructive, that they were not going to last much longer. And they all more or less said ayahuasca turned them around. And they really felt that it was the medicine and the, the supportive social context that the UDV provided that enabled them to stay on the path. And these were all, you know, highly functional um, people that were members of the UDV and, uh, and contributing to their, to their society. Uh, and uh, so it was an interesting connection between the pharmacological mechanism, potentially, and the behavioral result. And that's kind of where the study left off. I mean, there's much more work to be done. And now, you know, possibly it's beginning to be done in Brazil. It was a thread. And, you know, as, as things go in science, you, you, you find a thread, but you can't always follow it to the end. Um, because of uh, funding and time and that sort of thing. So I think this is a very exciting period in both socially and scientifically. Science is uh, uncovering new things about ayahuasca 
every day and socially the social phenomenon you can see it for yourself you know ayahuasca is set out to change the world and uh, as a biologist i look at this as a form of this is an expression of symbiosis you know much of what is going on with the social and political changes we're seeing with ayahuasca is of course you know, due to human activity. What's not discussed is, what is ayahuasca doing? You know, I'm a believer that ayahuasca wants to initiate symbiosis with the human species, as it always has, but now it wants to uh, propagate the message as, as, you know, it becomes more and more clear that, you know, the, the human species, which I sometimes call the stupid monkeys, uh, are not listening to the message which is that we have to re-understand our relationship with nature. And, uh, you know, this is very important. And Ayahuasca is trying to, almost hysterically now, hey, hey, let's get the message out there. And a lot of people are listening, finally, whether, it's, uh, whether there's time enough or not, hard to say. So, in a nutshell, I guess that's, I can answer questions. You said we need to re-understand our relationship with nature, but what are the key areas for young people joining the ayahuasca movement? I mean, where do you think it would be most beneficial for them to put their energy and focus on? There, thank you, it's a good question. I think there are so many fronts as, you know, ayahuasca is such a multidisciplinary inherently multidisciplinary thing that you can approach it on from many different directions. You know, some people would like to uh, look at the neuroscience, look at the research of ayahuasca on kind of a basic level because we still don't understand all about how it works. Other people would like to pursue the therapeutic applications. Uh, others are more interested in what you might call the, the ethnobotany, the ethnopharmacology. There's still a great deal to be learned on that front. I mean, there is a whole uh, universe, a whole pharmacopoeia of admixture plants. And some of these are involved in the traditional ayahuasca dietas. Uh, others are used with ayahuasca. Most are uninvestigated to any great extent. So I think there's you know, several PhDs worth of work to be done there. But another aspect of this, and something I'm, I'm pleased to see uh, at this conference is particularly apparent, and uh, I think there needs to be more of it. Traditionally, ayahuasca and these, and, these, and these indigenous medicines have been foci for social activism you know, for the protection of tribal rights, tribal lands, and this sort of thing. That needs to be expanded. I think that uh, ayahuasca really is a catalyst for changing global consciousness. And I think on the political social front, the more people with influence in the world, the more people with the ability to change the way we're doing things that can be brought to the medicine and discover for themselves the message that ayahuasca has to teach us, that's beneficially a good thing. You know, I'm concerned that 
you know, I mean, I'm kind of disillusioned with politics, you know, because it seems ineffective to me. But I think the politicians and the people in, in positions of power need to be woken up like we all do, but they perhaps more because they are very, you know, they don't listen. I, I was listening to a podcast by Graham Hancock the other day, and he was proposing that anyone who proposed to run for public office in the United States, this will never happen, but it's a good idea. Anyone that wanted to run for public office in the United States should have to go to an ayahuasca school where they receive a minimum of 12 ayahuasca sessions under the tutelage of master shaman. And, uh, you know, and then they have to integrate and then they can be qualified to run for office. Obviously this isn't happening, it's a dream, but I think it would make for a better, wiser class. You know, um, the problem in a larger context is that, you know, we, we as a species have to get wise. We have to become wise. In order to become wise, we have to wake up. up. We just have to wake up. Many are not even reached the first step. Once you've woken up, then you have to, and, and you know, you can become wise, but if you're un, unable, if you're powerless to do anything, maybe it doesn't do any good. So that's a long answer to a short question, I guess. <laughs> what would you say to parents that wants to somehow make psychedelics a part of their children's lives? I mean, how would you go about doing that? Well, no, I don't think you force anybody to do anything. That, that doesn't work, you know. You have to convince them to do something. And, and the way that happens is it happens through education. You know, I, I, don't, I also think that, as Wade mentioned in his speech, you know, the latest jag I'm on is that no plant, no fungus, nothing, no organism with which we form a symbiosis and any use of a plant or another organism for mutual benefit is a symbiosis. It's a fundamental human right. It's a fundamental right of biological systems. It's even more fundamental than humanity. And for any government to arrogate to themselves the right to uh, prohibit a plant is just absurd on the face of it. So we should start looking at, at it from that perspective, the very idea that you can prohibit a living organism. What, who authorized humanity to make that decision? Nobody, you know, and actually, I mean, the plants are in fact running the show and they haven't voted to, to eliminate humans, not yet, but it may come to that for the, for the benefit of the biosphere. So, so I think that's, uh, I think education. You know, and uh, education is the thing to show, people are inherently afraid of anything outside their cultural comfort zone. They're afraid of anything that pushes their own personal envelope, you know, their, their sort of default mode network of comforting beliefs, you know, their mindset. It's the, uh, you know, it's the classic stance of my mind is made up, don't bother me with facts. Right, and, but I think that's how you combat it. You provide education and evidence. You know, uh, that, that's the thing. You, you, 
do things like this conference, you do things like these videos that are coming out with veterans who are being given ayahuasca and to <coughs> treat PTSD and that sort of thing. You have to get the right eyes on those kinds of things and it will change, you know, people with the ability to change. It's a long process, but I, I have hope. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think that ayahuasca is one of the most powerful allies that we can have in bringing about this, this change on a global scale. And the problem is we don't have a lot of time. In order to not use up all the ayahuasca vine, can we use other sources of MAOI inhibitors and make, you know, like pharmawaska? Is, is pharmawaska the same or, or not the same as ayahuasca? No, pharmawaska, in my opinion, is not the same as ayahuasca. Pharmawaska is taking the, you know, synthetic DMT and the alkaloids of Banisteriopsis and putting it together in a capsule. It does have an effect, but you lose a lot. You lose a, you know, um, the, the times that I've experimented with pharmawaska myself, it's been... I mean, it sounds funny for a scientist to say that, but I, I felt that the medicine has no soul. It's very sterile. It's almost machine-like. It's very strange. It's interesting. It's not ayahuasca. I think what ayahuasca essentially has to, what it brings to people is this connection to the earth, you know, and, and it is very much an herbal preparation it's from plants and that's and that's one reason why it's more more of a challenge to get it into the regulatory framework because these other things like psilocybin and MDMA and so on they can be synthesized and they can be presented as single molecules I'm not putting down psilocybin not for a minute I mean I think these substances also have great therapeutic effects uh, but I think what ayahuasca brings is it's also, it's global medicine. It's, it, you know, it's medicine for the soul, not only the soul of the individual, but the soul of the planet and the soul of our collective, our collective species. Because as a species, we are wounded, you know, through centuries of propaganda, essentially, and brainwashing and the the widely propagated teachings that nature belongs to us and it's up to us, you know, we can use it any way we want. Well, nature is not owned by anybody. That's number one. Number two, we have to realize that we do not dominate nature. Nature rules the life on Earth. Plants through photosynthesis is what makes life on Earth possible. So, you know, we, well, as, as I have said before, in, in my first, in my speaking, you know, referring back to that initial uh, conference with the UDV, at the end of that conference, they wanted to show us their medicine. So about 500 people went to a temple outside Sao Paulo and took ayahuasca. I didn't speak Portuguese, so I was not expected to pay attention to what was being said, and I didn't. I had a very deep inner experience which was about photosynthesis and how important photosynthesis is, which is the thing that plants do 
capture sunlight from, from the sun and turn it into organic molecules, releasing oxygen in the process and removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. These are the th critical things that keeps the atmosphere in balance so that life can tolerate it. It's also the, you know, uh, the major, uh, one of the major processes that, uh, you know, makes life on Earth sustainable and one of the ones that we're putting the most pressure on. So I had that experience uh, at the end of the UDV, um, at the end of the UDV conference and ever since I've been like a cheerleader for photosynthesis, I guess you could say, you know, just appreciate what the plants do to keep life on earth possible. Uh, I mean, many other, this is the whole idea of symbiosis, you know, the biosphere, the entire community of species is, a, is an organism. You can think of it as an organism and it works by homeostasis and equilibrium. That's the way biology works. And, uh, you know, if we could understand that, you know, we, the Anthropocene program, the impact that human activity is having on the planet is, is against that. It is destabilizing these processes. The processes are extremely resilient, but there is a tipping point, and we're getting very close to the tipping point, you know, and that's why these dire predictions about rise in global temperatures should be taken seriously. This is not an abstraction. You know, they're, they're saying if, if average global temperature rises two degrees, you know, then it will trigger processes that will lead to the irreversible warming of the planet to the point where 90% of it may, may become much, much hotter, much, much drier. And the current climate Mod climate uh, change prediction models that the scientists are saying is that we're on track for average global temperatures to go three or four degrees above what they are now. Um, and that essentially is an in, in uninhabitable planet. Um, and this is, this is not, this is not Next century, this is, this is within the next 30 years that we'll begin to see these effects. In fact, we already are. All these, you know, extremely, uh, you know, extreme weather events, hurricanes, flooding, rise in sea levels. I mean, it's not that the, the planetary uh, ecological crisis is a few years ahead. You're looking at it. We are looking at it right now. You know, and it's not going to get any better unless we do what we can to slow it down. So I think that's the wake-up call that, that the plants are trying to transmit to it. Do you think the pharmaceutical industry is going to come out with some sort of synthetic miracle pill once more research has been done with ayahuasca? And is there a worry they will make it so it doesn't cure? Because, you know, you can make more money if people have to keep eating a pill. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's not that uh, all pharmaceuticals are terrible or anything like that. I think that the drug discovery is, is, uh, is okay. You know, this, this is a general, um, it's like there is no technology 
that is inherently evil or inherently good. It's all about the uses that they are put to. I mean, there is no, you know, there are plenty of bad ways to use ayahuasca, you know, as we can look at some of these traditions. You know, sorcery, witchcraft, they can be used to harm people. You know, the moral dimension in the use of these technologies comes uh, from human behavior. That's where the moral aspect comes. I think that, uh, I think that we know, need more clarity. For example, um, your, your example of pharmaceuticals, well, you know, there are literally trillions of dollars worth, if you want to look at it in, in dollars and cents terms, there are trillions of dollars worth of undiscovered medicines in the rainforest that could cure literally every ill that humanity faces. Why isn't the pharmaceutical industry exploring that instead of creating all these synthetics in the laboratory? Well, the reasons that they aren't are complicated, but there is a solution if they could work with NGOs and, and uh, indigenous peoples and, and foreign governments to set aside large tracts of Amazonian rainforest or other biodiverse regions for bioprospecting. That would be a much more, much less impactful and much more even eventually lucrative use of the rainforest rather than cutting it all down and planting soybeans or oil palms, you know, and it would be a positive step instead of, you know, the evil pharmaceutical industry. It could be, well, the wise pharmaceutical industry is looking at this chemical biodiversity and, uh, you know, become part of the solution. I think something I also neglected, I wanted to mention, but, uh, you know, ayahuasca is a catalyst for, for waking people up and something that seems more, uh, more out front at this conference than, than previous conferences is what a tool for political activism it is. Indigenous people have always known this. Well now, you know, we're indigenous people. Everybody is indigenous to earth, you know. So in that sense, we're all indigenous people and we need to think of ourselves as earthlings. And earthlings should stand up and tell their governments enough is enough. And I think that political activism is, you know, with ayahuasca, you know, to learn from is a good thing. I, I mean, I think the Extinction Rebellion movement that's going on in Europe and the UK is a good thing. I'd like to see more of that happen in the States. I think that young people should occupy Congress and say, you know, until you make climate change the front and center issue, then we're not leaving, you know, and we're not going to shut up about it either. Same should be said to the uh, political candidates that, you know, this needs to be the central conversation because this is about, this is about survival. And, uh, you know, I would like to see much more. I, I also would suggest in the States that maybe, uh, you know, those that are concerned to make an impact should, should uh, you know, we, sh we should try and get a tax rebellion of some kind going where people say, we're just not going to pay taxes to support more of this bullshit. You know, if you want us to pay taxes, use it for something good like maybe saving the planet, 
that seems like a good thing to try to do. So, you know, um, I, and then again, because of ayahuasca's ability to literally change hearts and minds, you know, you have to, all of these efforts to get people of influence to the medicine so that they can have these experiences and discover for themselves what the message is, you know, that should be encouraged. I mean, fortunately, a lot of the people with, you know, who are sort of at the cutting edge of all this already are, are kind of woken up. I imagine Elon Musk and these people have been beyond a chrysanthemum a few times, <laughs> you know, but more, more of that. In the United States, we are seeing a cultural change with the legalization of cannabis and psilocybin in some states. And the psychedelic culture is growing rapidly. Uh, what can we learn from indigenous communities? Well, I think, I think for one thing, you, you can learn from the indigenous communities that, uh, you know, I, I, mean, I, I think the sharpest contract contrast between indigenous communities and, and our Western culture is, has to do with consumerism. I think indigenous communities value experience over acquisition. You know, they, they don't have much materially from our perspective. I mean, you can go to these places and you say, well, how come these people are so happy? They don't have any iPods. They don't have any, you know, <laughs> they don't have all the things that we tend to think we have to have to, to be happy. And, and they derive their satisfaction from social interaction, family interaction, communing with nature and that sort of thing. So if we could learn that and be less focused on acquisition, because obviously consumerism is not a depend, the, you know, it's not a sustainable model. So it's not that we can just, just abandon consumerism necessarily or, or abandon our need for things. I mean, I'm sure we all value our iPhones and computers and, and all that, but we have, to, uh, we have to have some perspective about that. So I think, I think that's one thing, you know. And then I, I think the other major sort of perception that indigenous communities have that we need to uh, adopt or we need to learn is they don't see themselves as different from nature. You know, and we as a species, especially in the West, have been, have been brainwashed into thinking that somehow we're not part of nature. You know, and, and if and we're not part of nature, and not only are we not part of it, but it exists for us to use you know, without respecting. And uh, that's the dangerous perception. And this, this comes out of the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, unfortunately, where, you know, uh, we are encouraged to uh, look at nature. You know, we're in, uh, the whole perspective devalues nature, right? Because your salvation comes in the next world. So there's no motivation to value this world. And I'm telling you, it's a shell game. We need to value this world. We need to value what we have now and, and try, to, try to preserve it. So a change in perspective could go a long way toward uh, you know, changing global consciousness. And how you do it, there are many ways to do it.
and, and what's encouraging is that many, many people are, are working to uh, bring this change about. Um, what concerns me, um, among a lot of things that concern me, but what concerns me is, is this happening fast enough? Because this is a change that really needs to take place quickly. When you tell people, you know, you're going to have to change your lifestyle radically, and you're going to have to do it now, not next year, not five years from now. You have to do it now. You get a lot of pushback because you're you're basically telling people there is no comfort zone. You know, you can't just uh, sit in your comfort zone and hope that this is going to blow over. It's not going to blow over. You know, so we have to. Uh, try to foster change uh, in, in the light of that, you know, uh, being realistic about what, what, what is happening. And obviously, I don't have all the answers, you know, I'm just posing the questions here. I think there are people here who do have some of the answers. And, uh, you know, the indigenous people have always had this perspective that they're part of nature, they don't own it. If anything, they're stewards of nature, you know. But even that perspective implies a certain power over nature and, you know, benevolently intended. But, uh, you know, nature owns us. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and the biosphere as a community of species I think does regulate conditions on Earth to make uh, to maintain it in a situation that's compatible for life. Uh, and if we push the envelope too far, then I don't think life on Earth is going to go extinct. You know, evolution tells us if you look at the evolutionary record, there have been times when. 97% of all life on Earth has gone extinct. What that does is it opens up a new era for, you know, evolutionary proliferation of many phylas and so on. But this is, this plays out over hundreds of millions of years. You know, we can't even seem to look beyond the next 50 years. This is what is concerning. Spiritually, where do you stand Many people that drink ayahuasca have had what you could call religious experiences. Have you had any such experiences? Well, I can't say, I mean, I don't have those kinds of experiences, <laughs> I guess. I mean, I have met, um, I mean, like I would say, my visionary experience of photosynthesis was a religious experience in a certain sense. You know, it was an appreciation for this process of nature. But I, I guess I'm a, uh, uh, what's the term? I'm, uh, I'm an animist in a certain, certain sense or a, uh, um, 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 <laughs> a panpsychist, you know, uh, in a certain sense. I, I don't, I think that nature itself is the divine. There is no, outside entity, you no know, guy with a beard who's running things, you know, I think nature itself is divine. So in my psychedelic experiences, that's the kind of, that's what I encounter, and that's how I experience it. 
You know, nature is, a, is not only alive, it's much smarter than we are, you know, and uh, it will do what it needs to protect itself, which may be that, you know, many people have to die. I mean, it, that may be the reality of it, ultimately. Uh, but that's a pretty uh, depressing prospect to consider, but maybe we, realistically, maybe we have to face that fact, you know. Uh, well, I don't want to end this interview on a down <laughs> note, but... <laughs> but we are in a heap of shit, people, and we've got to do something about it to the degree that we can and to the degree that you know, we are able to do because a lot of this is beyond our control now. So, okay, is that it? Now we're going to listen to Dennis McKenna's presentation that he had during the conference about this book project he was involved with. The book is called Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs, 50 Years of Research, 1967 to 2017. You see, in 1967, a landmark symposium entitled Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs was held in San Francisco in California, uh, right around the Summer of Love and the Hippie Era. And uh, this gathering led to a book. On the 50th anniversary, an international group of specialists gathered again to share their perspectives on past, present and future research in ethnopharmacology. The symposium was held at the spectacular Turingham Hall in Britain. Synergetic Press published a collector's box set, including the first edition from 67, plus a brand new book with the 50th anniversary symposium findings. You know, for a bibliophile like myself, this uh, book, or these two books, is a real treat. And I even got Dennis to sign it for me, which makes it even more special. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, let's listen to Dennis talk about this book project. And uh, if you are interested in contemporary psychedelic history, then you'll get something out of this presentation, I think. So, first of all, uh, I want to thank ICERS for basically everything that they do. Um, this organization is amazing, and you can imagine the effort that goes into putting on a conference like this. So far, they've done a stellar job. ICERS is the uh, one organization I know of that's working in this area that I think we can all support without reservation. They have an ethical perspective on saving these sacred medicines, and uh, they're doing a wonderful job with conferences like this. So I'd like to give Ben and all his helpers a big hand. We have so far, there are four editors for the, uh, the book that we're celebrating today, the Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs. We have D 
Dr. Ian Prance, Sir Dr. Ian Prance, I'm not sure who is the chief editor. Dr. Luis Eduardo Luna, who is uh, one of the contributors and a friend of many years and, and probably the world's expert on the ethnography of ayahuasca in the mestizo tradition. And uh, not, not present at the moment, but to come later is uh, our beloved Ben De Leonen from ICERS, also an editor and uh, Dr. Wade Davis, uh, another friend of many years, now a professor of anthropology at UBC, and you know, he has so many books to his name and so much, he's done so much. He is the author of many books, but the one that perhaps most relevant here is One River, Explorations and Adventures in the Amazon, and that's kind of a biography of Richard Schultes, who is a who was, uh, Wade was his student. I'll speak of the, hey, how are you? Good to see you. <laughs> so Wade and I have spent some time together in the Amazon some 30 odd years ago. Uh, Wade is one of those people who if, uh, you know, if I tried to do this graduate work, field work on my own, I would have failed miserably. Once we met up with Wade in Iquitos and he agreed to come with us on the RV Heraclitus, which is a whole other story that you can hear about on Monday, you know, we were assured of success. And Wade is the author of One River, among many books, but in my opinion, One River, kind of an autobiography of, or a, a biography of Schultes, his mentor, uh, but in my opinion, it's easily the best nonfiction book ever written about the Amazon, uh, and it's not restricted just to the Amazon. So if you have any money left over after you have bought this tome, please order One River. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Luna is the editor of the Ayahuasca Reader, which is another synergetic publication that they have for sale in the booth. Also, a very fine second edition. So, so we are, you know, promoting books. Um, so I'm going to give a uh, short talk, hopefully, about the genesis of this project and what led to its creation. Um, the ethnopharmacologic search for psychoactive drugs is a symposium that was uh, put on in San Francisco in 1967 under the sponsorship of the National Institutes of Health. So the US government sponsored this conference. It was a private conference. The only thing that the taxpayers ever got out of it was the symposium proceedings. It was a closed conference. Somehow or other, that book came onto my desk. We didn't have desktops at that time, but uh, came into my hands, and it was very influential in my sort of um, decision to pursue a career in ethnopharmacology. So it's always meant a great deal to me, and I've always wanted to do a commemorative symposium because the government, they put this one thing out, the war on drugs came along and they became sort of embarrassed 
that they had ever had anything to do with that, you know, with psychedelics, anything positive to say about it. And of course, the original symposium, like the 2017 symposium that we organized together um, at Tyringham Hall in the UK in 2017, was a similar, a similar kind of work and trying to review the last 50 years, a lot has happened in what you might call psychoethnopharmacology since 1967 and 2017. So um, that, so um, in 2017, a number of things came together that made it possible to uh, have this 50th anniversary symposium. And the uh, book that resulted from that, we reprinted the 1967 volume along with the 2017 volume. That's why it's, it's a two-volume set. So I've already probably talked too long. Let's see. So does this advance it? Okay. So, uh, yeah, in 1968, the year after the, uh, the original EPSD, conference was held in San Francisco. Um, in 1968, I was a bored teenager uh, living in a very small town in western Colorado uh, with, and hanging out with my friends. Uh, we didn't have many drugs to abuse. Uh, beer, mostly, is what we were into. Um, but we were uh, definitely longing to be on the west coast where the action was. And uh, where that's where we were. This is where we wanted to be. <laughs> this is the summer of love in 1967. Uh, the human being with uh, Timothy Leary. Uh, and this took place a few months after the first ethnopharmacologic search for psychoactive drugs. Most people who migrated to San Francisco to participate in the Summer of Love probably knew nothing about this symposium. I certainly didn't. You know, at the time I was there, I spent some time there because my brother was living in Berkeley at the time. Um, what possessed my father to let me go to San Francisco in 1967, I'm not sure, but I'm glad that he did. And, uh, and so that symposium happened. And then in that same year, these two books sort of uh, came to my attention. The, uh, the one on the left, The Teachings of Don Juan, well, first edition. Well, um, that, that volume made many people aware of some kind of the ethnographic side of, of psychedelics, of, of sacred plant medicines. Now, I think now the consensus is that Carlos Castaneda made most of this up, but it didn't really matter at the time because what he did that I think was uh, a good thing was he made many people aware that there was an ethnographic aspect to, uh, you know, to the use. It wasn't something that just appeared out of nowhere with the appearance of LSD in our society and promoters like Timothy Leary. There was actually millennia of, uh, of uh, history uh, of, of the use of these compounds in shamanism and so on. So even though much of it was probably inaccurate, it, it, it made it clear that there was an ethnographic um, indigenous aspect to this. Somewhat later in that year, this book, 
the first edition of the Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs came into my hand, a very shabby, dog-eared edition. I'm not sure where that one came from, but as soon as I got it, I basically uh, read it from cover to cover and uh, couldn't put it down. And for me, it was very inspiring. These two books were the basis of my decision to pursue uh, uh, a career in ethnopharmacology. The first book, of course, uh, included some of the giants of the field, Richard Schultes, uh, Alexander Shulgin, Claudio Naranjo, who is here at this conference, and many others who were the pioneers of, of the topic. This was the first time I realized that there was actually science behind this. There was actually a scientific basis to study this. This wasn't just a bunch of crazy hippies taking drugs. There was real, you know, real work that was being done. And uh, this, this first uh, symposium volume was, uh, was kind of marked, marked that, but then there was never any follow-up. The government had originally intend to have follow-up conferences every 10 years or so, but it never happened. So in the subsequent 50 years, there have been quite a few things that have happened, and that was the basis of the conference that we organized uh, in 2017. And still, a very small part of, what's, of everything that was going on, a good selection of some of the more exciting uh, aspects of what you might call psychoethnopharmacology, but in no means, in no sense, is this book, as fine as it is, uh, you know, comprehensive. Um, there's still a lot of, and there's still a lot of work to be done, uh, certainly enough to fill a, a future ESPD conference, maybe ESPD 60. Um, the site of the, uh, of the conference was a lovely, uh, guest house uh, near, um, where was it? <laughs> I can't remember. Anyhow, Tiringham Hall, which is uh, <laughs> kind, of, uh, a kind of a famous building built in the, uh, in the 18th century. Uh, and uh, it was owned by a gentleman named Anton Bilton. Some of you may, be, uh, may know that name. He is a, a thought leader. He is a, uh, a person interested in seriously supporting psychedelic research, and he used Tiringham Hall for many such events like this. Uh, and uh, so when the, that was one part of it. We had an amazing venue for this conference. And so we decided, okay, even though there was only a few months to prepare for it, we decided let's go for it. We went for it, and we staged uh, the conference in June of 2017. And uh, then the symposium proceedings came out the next year. Um, while the original symposium was a closed conference, not open to the public, ours was a small conference because of limitations on the, on the space at Turingham but through the magic of uh, Facebook live streaming, uh, we could open it to the world while it was happening. So at certain points in the conference, uh, the videos, the presentations were viewed by over 75,000 people at one time, and we got a total of about half a million clicks over the, over the four days of the conference. So if nothing else, many more people learned what 
ethnopharmacology means. So it was, it was good educationally. Those videos are still up there. And you can watch uh, all the presentations if you want. Uh, I can, we can get the, uh, the link to it uh, on, on maybe the ICER's website or something. And this is just some pictures of the place, a beautiful venue. And, and we were able to uh, garner enough support from generous donors and also from the pre-sale of the book to bring some of the uh, well-recognized experts in this field um, um, to this conference, the contemporary experts, people like doc Dr. Luna and, and another uh, interesting person who was not represented at the conference, we invited him, but one of the people who was at the original conference, Dr. Stephen Zara, and Dr. Zara is 95, or he was 95 at that time, he said he didn't travel anymore, but he was happy to uh, present a video, which he did. And uh, we dedicated the conference to Dr. Zara. His, why is he famous? He is the person, he worked uh, as, he was a chemist and a pharmacologist, eventually became, ironically, the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse for a while. And he is the person who demonstrated for the first time that dimethyltryptamine was actually a psychedelic. No one before had had the courage to do that. Dr. Zara, working in Budapest at the time, tried to get LSD from Sandoz. And Sandoz refused to send it to his laboratory because he was behind the Iron Curtain. So being a chemist and a pharmacologist, he basically said, well, I'll whip up some of this DMT that everybody's talking about and try it and see what happens. So he did, and he published a landmark paper uh, on DMT, the first uh, paper on the, uh, that confirmed that DMT was a psychedelic in humans. And so that, we figured that was, uh, that was worth acknowledging. So out of that, we uh, asked everyone who presented at the conference to submit a paper. We were trying to be as true to the spirit of the first symposium as we could. So everyone come, we were able to cover uh, people's airfare, provide a small honorarium, a pathetically small honorarium to be honest, but a little bit. And, uh, and then also uh, we were able to uh, persuade everyone who participated to submit a full paper with all the data, and then that became this, this book, the second volume of this book. And the first uh, volume, the 67 edition, is also included. So um, the book is here, as you can see. Um, <laughs> I was looking at this pile and wondering um, just what is the carbon debt for producing a volume out of this many dead trees? Hopefully nature will forgive us, but there it is. So, uh, so that's it. That's the introduction to it. Go to ESPD50.com, and that's 50 as in the numbers. ESPD50.com if you want to check out the book. If you want to support the podcast, please become a patron. It will really help out. It takes a lot of work and time to put one of these episodes out every week. 
and as the situation is now I might have to scale down the number of episodes I do unless I can sustain some value from it because we all need to support our lives and family and I do have a day job as well that is also taking up a lot of time so if you got some scratch over if you can support just go to patreon.com forward slash natural born alchemist and uh, become a patron you can also follow the podcast in social media and if you got the time leave a nice review on itunes now we're going to uh, round off this episode with the sweet track work life in balance by c418 from the album df If you like this music, go to c418.bandcamp.com or c418.org. I hope you enjoyed this episode and got something out of it. If not, there will be a new episode that you might like better next week. So take care, see you then. Freedom is in the mind. Thank you.